0: Welcome to the 35th episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the intersection of consumer, retail, and commerce. Joining me today is Brian Berger, a co-founder of Mack Weldon, a company reinventing men's basics with a modern shopping experience and technical fabrics. Although there's a lot of activity in the basic space right now, most of it is incremental. Mac Weldon, however, wanted to rebuild the shopping experience as well as the materials that men rely on every day from the ground up.
1: Customers were trained in this category to wait for sales. And so what we did when we launched the business was we said, we're never going to have a sale. We're going to have a volume-based pricing where customers are rewarded based upon how big their shopping cart is.
0: Brian and I had a great talk about the brand's founding story, how the company's incentivizing men to buy more from the brand, and how the overall landscape is shifting out in the market. Here's my talk with Brian Berger. Tell me a bit about your background yourself, and then we can kind of work our way up to Mac Weldon existing.
1: My background is really on the consumer tech media side of things. I spent my career basically working in operating roles at, you know, small that became very large tech media companies. And then the two and a half, three years immediately prior to this doing corporate strategy and M&A for a very large diversified media company, Comcast, and we were making principal investments in and acquisitions of consumer digital brands that could be advantaged by a deeper partnership with Comcast. And so I happened to get a lot of exposure to e-com models as well as media models doing that work.
0: And what were the sorts of things that you were seeing that were either encouraging you to do something else or that you were seeing openings or gaps, so to speak? <laughs>
1: Well, I was always very focused on doing something entrepreneurial, and I was always very attracted to consumer goods businesses because there was a physical thing. And I was always, as a customer, very enthusiastic about brands that really solve problems for consumers, either in the product level or distribution. So I was really focused on that. You know, in terms of the work, one of the things that was resoundingly clear, given Some small project I did while I was in business school, which involved bringing a consumer good to market, was that it was becoming much easier to start a business like this, where you are having to manufacture goods, where you're having to set up third-party logistics and fulfillment, things that would historically have been really complicated, given the supply chain and faraway places, were becoming a lot easier. So I was able to observe businesses like Bonobos and Warby Parker in the early days, and others that really gave me you know, some insight into the fact that it was easier than it had been when I had did this other small project. And so
0: you're working at Comcast and kind of how did Mac Welding come into existence or what was kind of the early part to starting it and leaving? I yeah. assume you left.
1: Well, this business was really the product of the journey of a frustrated customer. I always hated the process of shopping for underwear and socks. I never really understood the marketing never connected with it in any way even though you know I thought the ads were cool you know could big Calvin Klein ads everywhere And then the product themselves never really lived up to the standard that I felt should be for this product category which to me is they're lifestyle goods but they really serve a very performance purpose and certainly in a guy's wardrobe. And so it all really came to a head for me when I had been thinking about it in terms of category because I felt like there were some attributes to it that were really positive in terms of the customer behavior, loyalty, repeat purchase behavior, you know, low hurdle rate to trial, evergreen, non-fashion sensitive, all those things. But it really all came to a head when my wife like threw out all of my tattered underwear and socks, and I had to go to the department store for that final time. And I realized When the sales guy said to me, are you confused yet? I realized that like now was really the time that I had to do this because this was like some sign that if I didn't do this, somebody else would. So how do you think the market kind of got to that
0: point where there was just kind of utter chaos? And I'm sure you're not the only one, obviously, that was having those experiences, but were there certain kind of conditions or fundamentals that got to a point where it was kind of open for something like this to come in?
1: Well, there's very specific fundamentals in the traditional value chain of brands selling through third-party retailers that creates confusion in a category like this. Because if you're a brand selling underwear into a big department store, you've got to have new product all the time or every season or every cycle because no buyer wants to see what they bought last time. The problem is, this is a category where customers look for consistency. You know, once you find something that you like and that fits you really well, you want to know that you can go back and get that over and over again, which is why you see a lot of loyalty around like Brooks Brothers undershirts or Boxer shorts or Banana Republic t shirts. Like, guys have loyalty to those things because they're generally producing the same thing. There was a fundamental and very specific reason why there's chaos in the market in terms of like, brands like Mac Weldon addressing it in the way that we are, you know, again, I think it's really the idea that this is a product that should be purchased in a non-physical retail type of environment, right? Once you know your sizing and your style preference, you really shouldn't have to go to a store to buy it.
0: And so you had that kind of experience at the department store and then what were kind of the early steps of that business? What were the first kind of six months of it like?
1: So I had to first make the decision to sort of pull the ripcord out of a big, comfy corporate job that I really loved. But I knew that I had sort of wanted to do something. This was the right time for me. And really then it became a parallel process of these two critical things. One was bringing the product story to life, right? Sort of showing what I meant by innovation and basics. And then on the other side of it was really bringing the brand to life. I think When you talk about consumer products and consumer goods, it's a very visual kind of emotional thing. So I think that even if it's just like a mock-up and a PowerPoint, it does make everything more real to anybody that you're talking to, whether it's a potential vendor, a potential investor, a potential partner. When you have something to show them to actually bring it to life, it really helps you kind of move it along. And so that's really what the focus was in the initial phase. And so was
0: it you? Was there a core team of people? Like how did it kind of get out of the gate then from the visualization
1: part? It was originally just me. I hooked up with my co-founder, Michael, who has, you know, close to 30 years of fashion and apparel expertise. And it was pretty great because he had gone through the process throughout his career of starting like some mini brands, some capsules, some things on the side. So he really had a sense for who to meet and who to talk to, especially on the brand development side. We were able to cut through the clutter and get to a good place there relatively quickly on the product development side. That was a much more difficult thing because many of the large domestic manufacturers, they give you attaboy for trying and say like, call us when you're huge. So that was a bit more of a discovery process. And we threw a guy I knew who was a senior product development person at Nike. I was introduced to somebody who was very instrumental. He used to run product at Nike and Adidas helped launch brands like Lululemon and was like really excited by the idea of, you know, creating innovation and basics, taking products that were, you know, historically very commoditized and thought of as boring cotton basics and taking it up a notch. And this guy was like a huge product junkie. And it was really just critical, fortunate early partnership that we had that has really led to our being able to execute product that is really to the customer very, you know, unique and differentiated and exciting. And so how did the launch go? The launch was pretty frightening. <laughs> you know, you see a lot of startups today Kickstartering things, pre-funding like their first purchase order. We essentially built everything from scratch. We built the website, we built the supply chain, we built the fulfillment operations, and we bought like meaningful six figures worth of inventory I loaded it into the warehouse, having never sold a single thing. And so when we lifted the curtain up, it was pretty frightening, hoping that all this investment would pay off. And fortunately, it did. And it wasn't dumb luck. We spent, obviously, a lot of time obsessing over the product detail. And since we were the customer, we knew like we got something here. If If, if we think it's really this powerful, then chances are other people will too. And then the other big piece of it was we were very, very, very conscious and deliberate about you know, launching with the appropriate PR support, and that is hired PR as well as our own networks, really making sure that all the influencers, all the people that, you know, were capturing mind share of our target customer, Cool Hunting, Uncrate, Hypebeast, Gear Patrol, you know, those types of sites, you know, the editors had the product, they were. Excited about it and willing to write about us. And fortunately, we got, you know, a majority of that very early on. So that's sort of set the ball rolling. And what that does is it creates evergreen content that exists as a third party validation of the brand anytime anybody searches for it. So it makes paid advertising more effective. It makes other PR more effective. It makes word of mouth more effective. And what kind
0: of assortment product-wise did you launch with? How kind of broader, narrower were the SKUs?
1: That's a really good question because when we started, we were really going to try and keep it as limited as possible. And so we liked socks because there was no sizing complexity. We felt that there was an opportunity to like do some real innovation there. It was before like everyone on earth was making socks. But what we evolved towards was we wanted to tell a brand story that was really around product innovation and utility and, you know, upgrading kind of from the norm. And so we said, well, what is the most limited assortment that we can tell that story to? But it has to be more than one product category. A, because we want to make sure that we can capture a customer who may not be in the market for Any one of those things, but also so that we could reinforce the brand story. Somebody likes product A, they're immediately understanding how that applies to product B. And so it was socks, underwear, undershirts, and tees. And then, you know, the variance between that. So we had three styles of underwear we had v neck and crew neck tees, v neck and crew neck undershirts, and then like solid socks and then some stripe pattern socks.
0: So it was still a sizable amount of SKUs though in, in different styles.
1: Yeah. One of the nice things about our business is now and then relative to any other apparel business is, you know, our SKU count is very low and we want to keep it that way. But yeah, it was more than one thing. Like we had to commit. We, you know, you have minimum order quantities. It was, like I said, frightening.
0: And so in kind of the first six months to a year, were there any kind of hypotheses that you had before launching that were either proven or disproven that kind of evolved?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think the main one was that there was an appetite for the kind of story that we were telling, which was really our product story and a customer experience story. Customers were really resonating with the product story as well as you know the story around how we were simplifying the process of buying these things. And so that was really more validating what we had known to be true And then the other piece of it was, can you continue to drive customer acquisition and awareness through sort of what we would call unpaid channels? We really wanted to initially show that we could build up a meaningful core customer base without having to throw a lot of paid marketing dollars at it. And that's not to say we're huge advertisers and believers in paid digital ad spend, But initially, we felt it was very important to show that we could get it out there through word of mouth and we can develop, you know, really strong PR relationships and do it that way. And and we were able to sort of prove that out. You know, before we spent a dollar, we really had already felt pretty confident about the customer base and not only their initial purchase behavior, but also their ability to come back and repeat order from us.
0: Talk a bit about kind of the thinking behind wanting to prove that out before just going and throwing money kind of on the marketing sense? Like what was kind of the thesis behind that?
1: Well, there's a couple of things. One is the minute there's an awareness that you have an ability to spend money, a lot of those folks who would have otherwise written about you from an editorial perspective will sort of run for the hills. And then the (laughs) second is, you know, again, just proving that there is just a need that you're tapping into that doesn't need to be stimulated by you know, advertising, like just this kind of, you know, something that we sort of imagined was and had tested and surveyed people about, but actually proving it in the real world that there was actually a need that we were tapping into, proving that out organically felt like it was an important thing to do for, to ourselves, to be able to go out and tell investors or whatever, you know, so that was really what drove that initial thing.
0: Gotcha. And so that was kind of 2012-ish and then what well, were kind of the next like two, three Yours like as everything started growing?
1: Yeah, I think it's a function of, you know, a lot of things. It's diversifying the marketing channels, you know, figuring out what type of capital requirements are needed to grow the business. It's building out the team. It's figuring out how you're going to evolve and diversify the product line, both in the categories that you're in, but even potentially new categories that you're not in. And everything really just kind of goes up in step functions from there. You know, bigger orders, bigger customer base, bigger customer service needs, those kinds of things are all really what happens once you kind of start the snowball going down the hill.
0: As you started to see things grow, talk a bit about kind of, I guess, the behavior of, from the customer side. As you alluded to before, this is a consistency-driven market. I assume there's a lot of replenishment to it. What were some of those behaviors in terms of even just like time and cycle of what you were expecting or kind of hoping for in terms of people buying more
1: or new or replenishing? We look at two things. We look at cohort behavior in, you know, 30, 60, 90, 120, 365 day intervals. So how are people behaving over time? And is that number staying the same or improving or declining? And there's a pretty strong argument to be made, you know, again, provided you have some proxies for loyalty. Like for us, it was 20% come back within reorder within 60 days, close to 50%, you know, reorder within 12 months. And then that number grows beyond that. So those all felt like good, you know, solid loyalty metrics. But what we wanted to ensure was that we were not, as we grew the customer base, that we were not degrading the quality of the customer base. And that when we were implementing CRM strategies, we were able to measure how they were improving customer behavior. And so those are things that we have like arms around. So we look at it at the cohort level, which is like the month, you know, a customer is acquired and a group of customers are acquired and how they perform over time. And then we look at it just relative to the overall base, which is, you know, what percent of reorders are we seeing over the total base, which is just a proxy for like the quality of the customer base. And as you start to really ramp up your growth, and in our case, it's been, you know, a hundred percent year over year or greater, you really want to make sure that you're maintaining the quality, right? Because that informs how much you can invest to get a customer in the first place.
0: So I'm curious to talk a bit about kind of just scale and how you were thinking of it and kind of approaching it. And then I'm sure that obviously dovetails into the fundraising piece. But I guess having watched some of the early kind of version one companies come up, how did you know how big you wanted to be, how boutique you wanted to be? Like, how did you kind of figure out that whole piece of what did scale and success mean for the company?
1: I mean, unless you have a just in time product or a virtual good there's just a natural pace at which you can grow, right? Because you have to make stuff. You have lead times. You have risk associated with predicting how big your customer base will be at the time when your goods arrive. Those are all bets. You're capital constrained no matter what, even if you have invested out. So there's all these kind of natural kind of governors that you have on things. But the nice thing for us was that you know we knew that even if we overinvested in inventory, you know, because we have an evergreen product, because we have a non-seasonal product, provided we had a business, we would have relatively low exposure. And so I think for us it was really just about making sure that we initially, you know, out of stock all the time, you'd have successful launches, you know, things would hit. And, you know, it was a good problem to have, but you're never happy like missing sales. Right,
0: leaving money on the table. Right,
1: especially when you're working so hard to like get a the attention of a customer, you'd much rather be in that scenario than having a warehouse full of inventory and nobody buying it. But that was something that early days was like something that we really had to calibrate. But there is a natural governor on growth. And you know, when you look at businesses that either have just-in-time inventory or inventory that was really easy to you know, produce on a very short lead time, it's kind of a different story. But for us, I think our real kind of challenge. And the thing that we had to navigate was making sure that we were being aggressive enough to capture growth, meaningful growth, growth that would get us excited, growth that would get investors excited, growth that would get employees excited, but be smart about it so that we were never too far overextending ourselves to where we had to make, you know, not smart decisions.
0: Yeah. And so talk a bit about kind of the product cycle and development piece in terms of how it plays into that. So you're non-seasonal, you're not working on kind of this obsolescence-driven nature that a lot of other apparel brands are. How does that kind of work in terms of when is stuff released? How often does it come out, replenishments, all of that?
1: When it comes to like new product introductions, we look at our own wardrobes, figure out what needs an upgrade or what's missing, and then we go to work on it. And we don't really release it until we feel like we've achieved something that is special and unique. As it relates to existing product, Um, We do think about those things somewhat seasonally and that we'll have color palettes and patterns and more kind of, um, you know, designy type of things that address a particular time of year. But it's not as though, like, oh, if there's a spring palette and happens to bleed into summer, like, that's a bad thing. Like, we don't ever have sales. We've never had a sale in the history of the company. One of the major problems that is very difficult to unwind is how brands and retailers have trained the customer to think about pricing, trying to stimulate people to come into a store. And because of the fact that folks have perishable inventory, those are two things that have resulted in like massive promotional strategies, which in my view, is probably the thing that is most largely responsible for what's going on in those channels. Because the minute you train a customer to think about price, that's all you can ever really talk to them about. It's very hard to go back and start talking to them about quality and innovation and other things.
0: There, There was an article in the journal that came out two days ago about how all the department stores are starting to discount cosmetics. And it's just like amazing to watch them probably kill their only profitable channel that's left
1: yeah it's a really difficult thing and once you go there it's very hard to go back and so when we started this business we acknowledged that pricing was a factor obviously because everybody wants to you know pay the lowest price but also customers were trained in this category to wait for sales guilt fab every department store you know would have these like you know semi-annual sales guilt fab Kro. every day like sale 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 yeah. And so what we did when we launched the business was we said, we're never going to have a sale. We're going to have a volume-based pricing where customers are rewarded based upon how big their shopping cart is. And we're going to create these tiers and we're going to have that be part of our like kind of brand. And we're not going to really talk about it all that much. And that will enable us to have a more meaningful conversation with the customer. It'll enable us to focus on things that actually matter and that we care about and that improve and bolster our brand in the customer's mind. So that's what we've done. And and it's worked out really well for us. I mean, we had 300% year over year growth from Black Friday to Cyber Monday without a single sale. And we're competing with like everybody's sales. So that to me indicates that, you know, the customer appetite is, you know, again, everybody wants to be rewarded for shopping more, but they also really value, you know, more kind of interesting conversation.
0: And so what's like a just super tangible example of how that pricing structure plays out? If I add X amount of products to the cart.
1: It's 10% at $100, 15% at $150, gotcha. and 20% at $200. That's, gotcha. that's basically what it is. Those are the breakpoints. And you get free shipping over 50.
0: You know, a common theme here is this idea of replenishment and consistency. How is kind of fit played into that? Because I assume obviously the plan was to keep it as constant as possible. But is that as easy in practice as it was in theory.
1: Well, one of the nice things about our major categories is that fit isn't really a huge issue. Hmm. You know, most of what we wear is stretchy material has Lycra in it socks generally are one size. And so that's another like great thing about the profile of our inventory. What we do see is as we introduce product with either a more nuanced fit, like a polo shirt, like the one I'm wearing or higher priced items, customer tends to scrutinize it a little bit more in terms of whether or not they want to keep it. And you sort of see that reflected mm-hmm. in the return rates. But, you know, I would say on average, our return rates are like staggeringly low when you look at like e-commerce, which is another important yep. thing. Fit, again, I think is something you always want to try and get right. Because in our case, it's less about like trying to drive down a return rate and more about like if you could get it right, if the customer doesn't have to jump through that extra hoop and trying to get into the right fit, then they're having that much better of an experience, right? And we all know how annoying it is to say, oh, I like it, but it just doesn't fit quite right. I got to send it back, wait for a new one to come in. So if you can avoid that either by how you communicate it to the customer in the first place, and that's just, I think, another thing that helps your brand.
0: Given that kind of the moment that started a lot of this happened in a retail store, is there or has there been a retail piece to this at all? Or do you plan to stay kind of strictly
1: online? In the right way, in the right context, I think we're super enthusiastic about retail. A great illustration of that is the partnership we have in place with Equinox right now. We launched a product line called Airnet X, which is our first like more technical, microfiber, actively leaning product line. And we've worked with Equinox since we launched the business because we just thought it was a really good brand complement for us you know, we're in their shops, we're not competing with other brands, guys often walk in there looking for underwear, actually, because Mm. they've forgotten it, just felt like a really good way to like, have a customer have their first interaction. So that's a really good example of retail partnerships that we like. I think as the product line, you know, gets a little bit more diverse, things like our own kind of direct retail presentation become more interesting. I just don't know how it ultimately looks like whether or not it's a pop-up shop or a shop-in shop. Those are all things that we're looking at. The idea of like permanent fixed retail, you know, in major markets just feels a little counter to why we exist, which is really about making it really easy for people to get it, you know, and not having to really like inconvenience themselves by having to go to a store to buy these things.
0: Right. So it sounds like it maybe is a looking at retail is kind of more of an acquisition tool than it would be a replenishment tool.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely awareness, trial, credibility. I think you can't discount the value that a consumer places on something they see in the real world. You know, I hear people talk about companies that I know are a fraction of our size, but like, because they can walk into a store, they think it's like gigantic. You know, that's important in terms of like building up the equity with customers.
0: I want to spend a bit talking about kind of the more macro kind of piece of this. I think we talked a bit about this before, but There's a lot of stuff happening. I think you can see Amazon becoming the biggest retailer for apparel this year. I think you see Walmart buying up their brands and going their own way. I think we also alluded to before about kind of this existential customer acquisition piece, which is, do the costs continue rising for all these brands to compete for a similar cohort of customers or on similar platforms? How are you looking at this kind of at a macro level in terms of worries, fears, concerns, excitement?
1: Well, I'm excited that big companies like Walmart and Unilever are putting enormous value on businesses like ours that, you know, really says that they're valuing not only the brand traction and product traction of these companies that they're investing in or acquiring, but they're also placing equal value on the digital expertise, which is something that obviously these companies can go out and build, right? They have unlimited resources. But they're recognizing that how you start, what your orientation is, what your DNA is, is something that can't really be bought. Right. And it's what companies like in this particular case, Dollar Shave Club and Bonobos had. So I think that that's all really positive. I think Amazon is awesome. And I think that the thing with Amazon is, you know, for us, it's kind of like, all right, well, are we differentiated enough to get customers to buy Mac Weldon from Mac Weldon, or some, you know, sort of Amazon flavor of what we're doing, because inevitably, I think they'll address this category. But, you know, Haynes Jockey and Fruit of the Loom are doing it too. But yet we're still capturing increasingly more share from those guys as customers decide to trade up to more premium offerings. We don't sell on Amazon, you know, there will be brands that exist and are successful that do not sell on Amazon. I think that's really where the brand equity comes in. Customers are not thinking only about price and convenience and, you know, the fact that all your information is there and like it comes in a day and all of that. If we do our job, then we should have a natural insulation against that. But, you know, I think we always want to be very clear about who's doing what and how it's going to impact the business.
0: Over the last five years, what's the thing that has changed most about the business?
1: I think that the biggest thing for us has been trying to moderate a regular cadence of new things, new offerings, without over-assorting ourselves. Uh, Because one of the benefits of having watch companies, you know, similar companies, but with much more diverse product lines, is just really recognizing how special it is that we have, you know... 200 or fewer SKUs, and we are in a situation where we have a ton of pricing integrity and we have, you know, really, um, you know, clean inventory profile, but at the same time, like we want to stimulate the customer base, right? We want to have new offerings for them. And we also want to be making noise in the market. so how do you balance, you know, new, new stuff versus like kind of repainting the existing stuff. And so that's really been, you know, something that we've had to really be smart about. I think we've, we've done a really good job at threading the needle on that.
0: What has been the most expensive and then cheapest lesson over the last five
1: years? Well, I think the most expensive lesson is, you know, you spend a whole lot of time in these businesses thinking about driving top line growth in revenue and you sort of think about costs and expenses, but you know, it always comes as a second to, you know, to just sort of driving the growth in the top line. And we've made some changes in the last year. One of the most significant of which was we opt- started to optimize and get way more aggressive about our shipping and our shipping strategy. Cause it's not just, you know, FedEx over UPS over USPS. It's like, what carrier you use for what part of the country, and it's a little bit of an algorithm. And in this year, we will save a seven-figure sum of money just by doing that exercise. And for a company our size, that's like gigantically meaningful. So I guess that was an expensive decision, I guess, right? Because or is it cheap? <laughs> it's like it's both. All right, I'm off the hook. And I guess the other one, or you know, I think what I was thinking about in terms of you know, cheap was when we initially started advertising on podcasts. We had started working with an agency because we had very limited experience with the channel. And what happened was somebody on our internal team, after a couple of months of kind of, you know, kind of mediocre testing, he said, you know, let me manage some of this budget. And if I beat it, you could think about letting me, you know, run some of this ad spend for us. And his results were like 10 X better. And that resulted in our growing that channel from like zero to like 20% of our ad mix in a relatively short period of time. And so that was like existing employee doing something else, not hired to do that job, just sort of stepping in and, you know, all incremental new customer acquisition for us. So 20% new customer acquisition. So that's one that I like to say was, you know, kind of an efficient way to, you know leverage an existing resource to meaningfully grow the business and entering, you know, a new ad channel that diversifies our mix which is also really important.
0: When people ask you like what sort of company do you consider yourself between a tech apparel basics, how do you kind of answer that question?
1: I think we're 50% a consumer goods business and I'll just you know make it generic because you know any consumer goods business is making it manufacturing it getting it somewhere, you know, so 50% of our business is very similar to every other consumer good business out there. And then 50% a tech business and tech in terms of, you know, how we think about data, how we use it to inform our product development, how we use it to inform our assortment, how we use it to inform our marketing, how we use it to inform our customer interactions, how we, you know, treat customers, how we improve the product over time is all really driven by Hardcore tech and data analytics
0: going back to kind of the scale piece a bit, I think we're seeing a lot of these brands that are spending lots of money in advertising they're hitting a certain point, and then maybe they're plateauing and I think generally, if you look, I would say you know getting five ten fifty million, okay, getting thirty to fifty harder but okay, getting to a hundred a little bit harder but doable, and then when you get into kind of the mid hundreds up to the billions it gets a lot more challenging and, or we haven't seen a lot of that besides maybe a handful of exceptions, I guess one, feel free to dispute any of that. And then two, how do you look at kind of a ceiling, if a ceiling at all for these sorts of companies?
1: Yeah, I think in general, even if you look at traditional brands, there's not an archive of billion dollar like apparel brands, right? There are several, but you know, when you think about the ones that there are Nike, Under Armour, You know, Lululemon is a good analog to us in that, you know, similar type of approach, narrow focus. But in a world where people's attention spans are very short, maybe, you know, the future apparel brands are not going to be billion dollar brands. You have to make certain exceptions if you're going to do that. It's very difficult to be one channel and do that. It's very difficult to have a limited assortment and do that. And so for us, we are very cognizant of that. But I think our point is we are focused on getting to each successive level of our business. And we're kind of in that, not the first tier, but in that second tier that you referenced. And we just feel like at different levels of scale, you have different optionality, right? A $30 million wardrobe essentials business that is primarily domestically focused you know, has different options available to it you know, as a 30 to $50 million business than it does as a $10 million business. We're not tapping international markets. We are still very limited. We are generally one channel of distribution. There are things that open up, I think, when you get to different levels of scale. But I also think that if you're just spending money to grow the top line, it doesn't necessarily mean you're building a high-quality business. What you see with a lot of these subscription companies is just that. It's like investors love the idea of like committed recurring revenue. Those companies bet on some level of churn rate once they settle in. And then it's just a matter of like, how much can you spend? How fast can you grow? But I don't know. Is that a good business? Is that a sustainable long-term business? Will any of these businesses go public? I mean, blue apron just went public. So reluctantly, you know, I don't know. Sure. If you gave me a mandate to spend another $10 million in marketing this year and you said, don't worry about profitability and our interests were aligned on that, then yeah, we could do that.
0: And then as you look kind of three to five years into the future for, I guess, the second half of the decade that this company has existed, what's on the horizon? What are you most excited about?
1: I'm most excited about the appetite that our customers have for some of the new innovations that we're putting out. I think when we started the business, we were not sure whether or not people were only going to think about us as like a specialty, like underwear and sock, you know, innerwear business. And so as we've launched, you know, into some of these other categories like sweats and polos and seeing this like enormous appetite that the customer base has for these things, it's just, it's just gotten me really excited because it opens up your thinking, not to some, you know, massive collection, but like, okay, well I just flew halfway across the world and I was wearing jeans the whole time. all that just doesn't feel right. Like I should, you know, maybe we should develop a travel pan and like you can just kind of come back to the lab and like spin up the process and see what comes out the other end. And I think that part of it is pretty exciting. The other parts of it are really just seeing the traction and awareness really take hold and thinking about how other ways in which we can address our customers. So Equinox is a great example. There's some other conversations we're having with other retailers and brands to partner up in ways that will get us, know additional exposure to the customer in other venues
0: and then where's the name from
1: the name was inspired by a brand in the early 1900s called weldon that made underwear and sleepwear and we found some old marketing that they had that we thought was really kind of irreverent and smart for that time period because everything else that we had seen was very like utilitarian Mm -hmm. and then mac was sort of like a modern altar you go to it cool thanks so much for doing this yeah awesome thank you for having me really appreciate it
0: Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. Join the newsletter at loosethreads.com and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. This episode was edited by George Drake Jr. and my thanks to him for his time on it. I enjoyed talking with Brian about his time building MacWeldon Weldon and how sometimes creating things the hard way is often the right way. His pragmatism about the potential of brands like MacWeldon Weldon was also refreshing and it seems that he's architected the company to take advantage of that potential while also managing expectations. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Alexa Buckley of Margo, Melissa Duran of Jennifer Beck Communications, and Andreas Modak of Snow. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.